Section 5 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Introduction, Part 1 The Atomic Century One hundred years ago, a half-century before the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the discovery of X-rays spotlighted the extraordinary promise and peril of the atom. One hundred years ago, from that time until 1942, Atomic research was in private hands. The Second World War and the Manhattan Project, which planned and built the first atomic bombs, transformed a cottage industry of researchers into the largest and one of the most secretive research projects ever undertaken. Scientists who had once raced to publish their results learned to speak in codes accessible only to those with a need to know. Indeed, during the war, the very existence of the man-made element plutonium was a national secret. After the war's end, the network of radiation researchers, government and military officials, and physicians mobilised for the Manhattan Project did not disband. Rather, they began working on government programs to promote both peaceful uses of atomic energy and nuclear weapons development. Having harnessed the atom in secret for war, the federal government turned enthusiastically to providing governmental and non-governmental researchers, corporations and farmers with new tools for peace. Radioisotopes, mass-produced with the same machinery that produced essential materials for the nation's nuclear weapons. Radioisotopes, the newly established Atomic Energy Commission, AEC, promised, would create new businesses, improve agricultural production, and through human uses in medical research, save lives. From its 1947 creation, to the 1974 reorganisation of atomic energy activities, the AEC produced radioisotopes that were used in thousands of human radiation experiments conducted at universities, hospitals and government facilities. This research brought major advances in the understanding of the workings of the human body and the ability of doctors to diagnose, prevent and treat disease. The growth of radiation research with humans after World War II was part of the enormous expansion of the entire biomedical research enterprise following the war. Although human experiments have long been part of medicine, there had been relatively few subjects, the research had not been as systematic, and there were far fewer promising interventions than there were in the late 1940s. With so many more human beings as research subjects 
and with potentially dangerous new substances involved, certain moral questions in the relationship between the physician researcher and the human subject, questions that were raised in the 19th century, assumed more provenance than ever. What was there to protect people if a researcher's zeal for data gathering conflicted with his or her commitment to the subject's well-being? Was the age-old ethical tradition of the doctor-patient relationship, in which the patient was to defer to the doctor's expertise and wisdom, adequate when the doctor was also a researcher and the procedures were experimental? While these questions about the role of medical researchers were fresh in the air, the Manhattan Project and then the Cold War presented new ethical questions of a different order. In March 1946, former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill told an audience in Fulton, Missouri, that an iron curtain had descended between Eastern and Western Europe giving a name to the hostile division of the continent that had existed since the end of World War II. By the following year, Cold War was the term used to describe this state of affairs between the United States and its allies on the one hand and the Soviet bloc on the other. A quick succession of events underscored the scope of this conflict as well as the stakes involved. In 1948, a Soviet blockade precipitated a crisis over Berlin. In 1949, the American nuclear monopoly ended when the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb. In 1950, the Korean War began. The seeming likelihood that atomic bombs would be used again in war and that American civilians as well as soldiers would be targets, meant that the country had to know as much as it could, as quickly as it could, about the effects of radiation and the treatment of radiation injury. This need for knowledge put radiation researchers, including physicians, in the middle of new questions of risk and benefit, disclosure and consent. The focus of these questions was directly and indirectly, an unprecedented public health hazard, nuclear war. In addressing these questions, medical researchers had to define the new roles that they would play. As advisers to the government, radiation researchers were asked to assist military commanders who called for human experimentation to determine the effects of atomic weapons on their troops. But these researchers also knew that human experimentation might not readily provide the answers the military needed. As physicians, they had a commitment to prevent disease and heal. At the same time, as government advisers, they were called upon to participate in making decisions to proceed with weapons development and testing programs that they knew could put citizens, soldiers and workers at risk. As experts, they were asked to ensure that the risks would not be excessive. And as researchers, they saw these programmes as an opportunity for gathering data. As researchers, 
they were often among the first to volunteer to take the risks that were unavoidable in such research. But the risks could not always be disclosed to members of the public who were also exposed. In keeping with the tradition of scientific inquiry, these researchers understood that their work should be the subject of vigorous discussion, at least among other scientists in their field. But, as government officials and advisers, they understood that their public statements had to be constrained by Cold War national security requirements, and they shared in official concern that public misunderstanding could compromise government programs and their own research. Medical researchers, especially those expert in radiation, were not oblivious to the importance of the special roles they were being asked to play. Never before in history began the 1949 medical text, Atomic Medicine, have the interests of the weaponeers and those who practice the healing arts been so closely related. This volume, edited by Captain C. F. Behrens, the head of the Navy's new Atomic Medicine Division, was evidently the first treatise on the topic. It concluded with a chapter by Dr. Shields Warren, the first chief of the AEC's Division of Biology and Medicine, who would become a major figure in setting policy for post-war biomedical radiation research. While the atomic bomb was not of medicines contriving, the book began, it was to physicians more than to any other profession that atomic energy had brought a bewildering array of new problems, brilliant prospects and inescapable responsibilities. The text, a prefatory chapter explained, treats not of high policy, of ethics, of strategy or of international control of nuclear materials, as physicians these matters are not for us. Yet what many readers of atomic medicine could not know in 1949 was that Behrens, along with Warren and other biomedical experts, was already engaged in vigorous but secret discussions of the ethics underlying human radiation experiments. At the heart of these discussions lay difficult choices at the intersection of geopolitics, science and medicine that would have a fundamental impact on the federal government's relationship with the American people. This chapter provides a brief survey of the development of radiation research and the changing roles of the biomedical researcher from the discovery of X-rays by a single individual to the complex world of government-sponsored human radiation experimentation. Finally, at the end of this chapter, an aid to the reader titled The Basics of Radiation Science provides information needed to understand technical concepts in this report. Before the Atomic Age Shadow Pictures, Radioisotopes and the Beginnings of Human Radiation Experimentation 
Radiation has existed in nature from the origins of the universe, but was unknown to man until a century ago. Its discovery came by accident. On a Friday evening, November the 8th, 1895, the German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen was studying the nature of electrical currents by using a cathode ray tube, a common piece of scientific equipment. When he turned the tube on, he noticed to his surprise that a glowing spot appeared on a black paper screen coated with fluorescent material that was across the room. Intrigued, he soon determined that invisible but highly penetrating rays were being produced at one end of the cathode ray tube. The rays could expose photographic plates, leaving shadows of dense objects, such as bone. After about six weeks of experimenting with his discovery, which he called X-rays, Röntgen sent a summary and several shadow pictures to a local scientific society. The society published the report in its regular journal and wisely printed extra copies. News spread rapidly. Röntgen sent copies to physicists throughout Europe. One Berlin physicist could not help thinking that I was reading a fairy tale. Only the actual photograph proved to everyone that this was a fact. Physicians immediately recognised these rays as a new tool for diagnosis, a window into the interior of the body. The useless left arm of German Emperor Wilhelm II was x-rayed to reveal the cause of his disability, while Queen Amelia of Portugal used x-rays of several of her court ladies to vividly display the dangers of tight-lacing. Physicians began to use x-rays routinely for examining fractures and locating foreign objects, such as needles swallowed by children or bullets shot into adults. During World War I, more than 1.1 million wounded soldiers were treated with the help of diagnostic x-rays. In 1896, Röntgen's insight led to the discovery of natural radioactivity. Henri Becquerel, who had been studying phosphorescence, discovered that shadow pictures were also created when wrapped photographic plates were exposed to crystals partly composed of uranium. Could this radioactive property be concentrated further by extracting and purifying some, as yet unknown, component of the uranium crystals? Marie and Pierre Curie began laborious chemical analyses that led to the isolation of the element polonium, named after Marie's native Poland. Continuing their work, they isolated the element radium. To describe these elements' emission of energy, they coined the word radioactivity. As with X-rays, popular hopes and fears for natural radioactivity far exceeded the actual applications. One 1905 headline captures it all. Radium, as a substitute for gas, electricity, and as a positive cure for every disease. Following initial enthusiasm that radiation could, by destroying tumours, 
provide a miracle cure for cancer, the reappearance of irradiated tumours led to discouragement. Despite distressing setbacks, research into the medical uses of radiation persisted. In the 1920s, French researchers, performing experiments on animals, discovered that radiation treatments administered in a series of fractionated doses instead of a single massive dose could eliminate tumours without causing permanent damage. With the new method of treatment, doctors began to report impressive survival rates for patients with a variety of cancers. Fractionation became, and remains, an accepted approach to cancer treatment. Along with better understanding of radiation's benefits came a better practical appreciation of its dangers. Radiation burns were quickly apparent, but the greater danger took longer to manifest itself. Doctors and researchers were frequently among the victims. Radiation researchers were also slow to take steps to protect themselves from the hidden danger. One journal opened its April 1914 issue by noting that we have to deplore once more the sacrifice of a radiologist, the victim of his art. Clear and early evidence of tragic results sharpened both expert and public concern. By 1924, a New Jersey dentist noticed an unusual rate of deterioration of the jawbone among local women. On further investigation, he learned that all at one time had jobs painting a radium solution onto watch dials. Further studies revealed that as they painted, they licked their brushes to maintain a sharp point. Doing so, they absorbed radium into their bodies. The radium gradually revealed its presence in jaw deterioration, blood disease, and eventually a painful, disfiguring deterioration of the jaw. There was no question that radium was the culprit. The immediate outcome was a highly publicised crusade, investigation, lawsuits and payments to the victims. Despite the publicity surrounding the dial painters, response to the danger remained agonisingly slow. Patent medicines containing radium and radium therapies continued. The tragedy of the radium dial painters and similar cases of patients who took radium nostrums have provided basic data for protection standards for radioactive substances taken into the body. One prominent researcher in the new area of radiation safety was Robley Evans. Evans was drawn into the field by the highly publicised death in 1932 of Eben Byers following routine consumption of the Nostrum Radiothor. Byers' death spurred Evans then a California Institute of Technology physics graduate student, to undertake research that led to a study of the effects on the body of ingesting radium. This study would continue for more than half a century. Evans' study and subsequent studies of the effects of radium treatments provided the anchor in human data 
for our understanding of the effects of radiation within the human body. As the dangers of the imprudent use of X-rays and internal radiation became clear, private scientific advisory committees sprang up to develop voluntary guidelines to promote safety among those working with radiation. When the government did enter the atomic age, it often referred to the guidelines of these private committees as it developed radiation protection standards. The Miracle of Traces In 1913, the Hungarian chemist George von Hevzi began to experiment with the use of radioactive forms of elements, radioisotopes, to trace the behaviour of the normal, non-radioactive forms of a variety of elements. Ten years later, Hevesy extended his chemical experiments to biology, using a radioisotope of lead to trace the movement of lead from soil into bean plants. In 1943, Hevesy won the Nobel Prize for his work on the use of radioisotopes as tracers. Previously, those seeking to understand life processes of an organism had to extract molecules and structures from dead cells or organisms and then study those molecules by arduous chemical procedures or use traceable chemicals that were foreign to the organism being studied but that mimicked normal body chemicals in some important way. Foreign chemicals could alter the very processes being measured and, in any case, were often as difficult to measure precisely as were normal body constituents. The radioactive tracer, as Our Friend the Atom, a book written by Dr. Heinz Haber for Walt Disney Productions, explained in 1956 to readers of all ages, was an elegant alternative. Making a sample of material mildly radioactive it's like putting a bell on a sheep. The shepherd traces the whole flock around by the sound of the bell. In the same way, it is possible to keep tabs on tracer atoms with a Geiger counter or any other radiation detector. By the late 1920s, the tracer technique was being applied to humans in Boston by researchers using an injection of dissolved radon to measure the rate of blood circulation, an early example of using radioactivity to observe life processes. However, research opportunities were limited by the fact that some of the elements that are most important in living creatures do not possess naturally occurring radioactive isotopes. The answer to this problem came simultaneously at faculty clubs and seminars in Berkeley and Boston in the early 1930s. Medical researchers realised that the famed atom smasher, the cyclotron, invented by University of California physicist Ernest Lawrence, could be used as a factory to create radioisotopes for medical research and treatment. Take an ordinary needle, our friend the atom explained, Put it into an atomic reactor for a short while. Some of the ions contained in the steel will capture a neutron 
and be transformed into a radioisotope of iron. Now that needle could be found in the proverbial haystack without any trouble. In 1936, two of Lawrence's Berkeley colleagues, Drs. Joseph Hamilton and Robert Stone, administered radiosodium to treat several leukemia patients. In 1937, Ernest Lawrence's brother, physician John Lawrence, became the first to use radiophosphorus for the treatment of leukemia. This application was extended the following year to the treatment of polycythemia vera, a blood disease. This method soon became a standard treatment for that disease. In 1938, Hamilton and Stone also began pioneering work in the use of cyclotron-produced neutrons for the treatment of cancer. The following year, not long before the war in Europe began, Ernest Lawrence unveiled a larger atom smasher to be used to create additional radioisotopes and hence dubbed the medical cyclotron. The discovery that some radioisotopes deposited selectively in different parts of the body, the thyroid for example, inspired a spirited search for a radioactive magic bullet that might treat or even cure cancer and other diseases. In Cambridge, the age of nuclear medicine is said to have begun in November 1936 with a lunchtime seminar at Harvard at which MIT President Carl Compton talked on what physics can do for biology and medicine. Robley Evans, by that time at MIT, is reported to have helped prepare the portion of the talk from which medical researchers at the Massachusetts General Hospital's thyroid clinic came to realise that MIT's atom smasher could produce a great research tool for their work, radioisotopes. Soon, doctors at the thyroid clinic began a series of experiments, including some involving humans, that would lead to the development of radioiodine as a standard tool for diagnosing and treating thyroid disease. In late 1938, the discovery of atomic fission in Germany prompted concern among physicists in England and the United States that Nazi Germany might be the first to harness the power of the atom as a propulsion method for submarines, as radioactive poison, or most worrisome of all, as a bomb capable of unimagined destruction. In the United States, a world-famous physicist, Albert Einstein, and a recent emigre from Hungary, Leo Szilard, alerted President Franklin D. Roosevelt to the military implications of the German discovery in an August 1939 letter. Assigning his own science advisor, Vannevar Bush, to the task of determining the feasibility of an atomic bomb, Roosevelt's simple OK, scrawled on a piece of paper, set in motion the chain of events that would lead to the largest and most expensive engineering project in history. Soon Ernest Lawrence's radiation laboratory and its medical cyclotron were mobilised to aid in the nationwide effort to build the world's first atomic bomb. 
in a related effort, Dr. Stone and Hamilton, and others, would turn their talents to the medical research needed to ensure the safety of those working on the bomb. End of Introduction, Part 1